0: Hi, I'm Lina Sergiatar and welcome to Belongings, a podcast where we talk about home and have conversations about the places that create, shape, and sometimes break us. Everybody. Today I have a very special guest with me. I'm interviewing a member of the Keram team, Noor al-Gharaoui. Noor is our communications coordinator and helps a lot with the production of this podcast, Belongings. I really can't do this podcast without her support. She's been on the Keram team for almost two years now. She is a writer and has her MFA in poetry and is a Syrian refugee from Damascus. Noor migrated to the U.S. 10 years ago and has been using her voice to speak out about refugee rights. I'm so excited for you to hear our conversation. Tune in.
1: Welcome Noor to Belongings. Thank you so much for having me, Lina. It's such an honor to be here with you. I'm really excited to have you here
0: today as a guest of this podcast. A lot of times you're behind the scenes as a producer on this
1: podcast, so it's
0: so exciting to have you here today to talk about your work.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's really exciting to be on the other side and then to see how it feels to be a guest on, on your podcast.
0: So everybody, before we get started, I want to tell you a little bit about Noora Hraoui. She is a Karam team member, and she's our communications coordinator. A lot of times, as I said, she is a producer of this podcast, and I want to read a little bit of her bio so you know that she's just this incredible human being, an amazing writer and poet, and we're excited to share her work with you today. Nur al-Ghraoui is a Syrian writer, activist, and educator born and raised in Damascus, Syria. She has received a BA in English Literature at the University of Texas at Austin and an MFA in Poetry at Texas State University. She currently works as a Communication Coordinator at Kerem Foundation. Her poetry and essays have appeared in Poetry Magazine, Day Magazine, Minza Literary Journal... Porterhouse Review, World Literature Today, and others. Noor writes in hopes of changing the Western view of the Middle East and the Arabic language, which is often viewed as inimical. She also writes about social justice, migrant identity, and what it means to be an immigrant in an unwelcome place. And finally, she writes about feminism and what it means to be a feminist Middle Eastern woman. Welcome again,
1: Noor. Thank you. Thank you so much for the introduction, Lina. So we want to
0: dig into your life and your journey. And the beginning question that I usually ask in this podcast is, could you tell us a little bit about what belonging means to you?
1: So belonging means that, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you feel at peace, you feel that, you know, you are part of that world that surrounds you. It's about being kind of like included. It's about being accepted. It's about being safe in whatever environment that you're in and whatever community that you're in. Belonging means also being happy, feeling at home. And then that could be in, in different forms. That could be because of the people around you. That could be because of the the house that you're in, friends, words, books. It comes in all forms. So yeah, that's what I think belonging means.
0: I know you explore this concept a lot in your work, which we'll get into later. And uh, I do agree with you, this idea of home as safety and belonging is so important, especially for people who've had to leave home and find a new home in other places, which we'll also talk about. So my next question is also a belongings tradition, which is the mapping exercise and mapping home. I'd like to ask you to draw your map of home and you could express that in any way you want. It could be a home of the past, the present or the future, and the map could take also different forms. So I'll give you a few minutes to to draw your home and then we'll talk about your journey and your story. And if you'd like to be talking about what you're drawing as you go, that's okay too.
1: You know, I knew I was going to draw a map of home and then I'm not that kind of artist. I'm more with words than drawing. And then of course I thought about my childhood home, which I haven't seen in 10 years. I obviously know kind of like the structure, but I was trying to remember details and things that meant a lot to me. So I do want to thank you for this exercise. It kind of takes you back and then puts you in a place where you feel that, you know, you belong and then you feel safe. Even if you're visiting with memory only, you're not actually there. But I'm going to try my best to kind of draw this map. I'm sure it'll be great. I hope so. Maybe I'll switch careers into uh, drawing then. (laughs) So I'll be drawing the place that I grew up in. Okay, so this is my map of home. I'll explain a little bit. So right here, we have the front door where we walk in. And then we walk in, there's a little hallway. To the left is my parents' room. Right next to it, I shared a bedroom with my siblings all my life. It's a pretty decent room. One thing that means a lot to me is this wall right here. There's a bookshelf that my dad built that goes from up the ceiling all the way down to the floor. And it's full of books. There are some shelves with toys, but it's mostly books. So like books have always been a big part of my life. And then here we have the living room. And then right here, these three, there are three little stairs that separate the living room from what we call a guest room. And we all know, like, if you grew up in Middle Eastern households, you're never allowed to go into the guest room. Like, we barely sat on those, on those couches. But I love those stairs a lot. I spent a lot of my childhood just sitting on these three stairs. Here in the living room, there's another like a smaller bookshelf also full of books. And this is where I picked up my very first book that made me fall in love with reading. And then right next to the guest room, we have the kind of the dining area. It is in the same room, but kind of in the corner. And then here we have the kitchen and just kind of like a shower and a bathroom. Right here, it's, this is like right outside the building is a garage that also my dad built for his car. We only have one neighbors on top of us. So it is a building that actually my grandpa built many, many years ago. But we have just one house on top of us. And then kind of like in the basement is a chocolate factory is where my dad made chocolate and we kind of like grew up in the factory. And then it's just right there. Like we would open our window every morning. And you can smell the chocolate. That was kind of like more than enough <laughs> to get some cavity. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I didn't realize
0: that that the chocolate factory was in your building.
1: Yeah. So, you know, when you walk in, you see the building, you go down like five steps and you walk into the building and on your right, that's the factory. It's just like the whole like kind of Maybe like first floor, and then you go up the stairs, and then that's my house, and then one more, and then our neighbors. But yeah, it was just right beneath my house. So, for context for everybody listening,
0: the Hraoui family in Syria is famous for their chocolates and famous chocolatiers, and have factories. and uh, I remember in Aleppo, it would be really special when somebody would go to Damascus and come back and have a box of the Hraoui chocolates. Especially, I remember the dipped fruits. I think the naranj and the Mush-mush. the, the mush, the apricots. I think Damascus is famous for these dried fruits and the Ghraoui family chocolate. Like the chocolate factories would dip these and make them put them into these beautiful boxes.
1: Yeah, actually, it's kind of like a generation thing. My dad also kind of grew up in the factory. Their house was not close, but he was always there watching his dad, who was one of the first people who brought chocolate to Syria. He would, would just watch him make the chocolate and everything and even though my dad graduated with an engineering degree but he never worked an engineer he just kind of took my grandpa's recipes and then worked on them developed them and created new ones and he just fell in love with chocolate. Did you ever work in the factory? So that whenever it's like Eid or, you know, Ramadan or something big happening, we help my dad. But, you know, with very specific things, because he doesn't want us to be too involved, like putting stickers, for example, because everything is by hand. They wrap the chocolate by hand. They put the sticker by hand. My dad makes everything from scratch. So little things. Yeah. But mostly I would help in the store more than the factory by like selling chocolate, filling boxes or whatever they need.
0: Was the store also close by?
1: No, so it was a little bit far. I mean, Damascus is not that big. It was like maybe 15, 20 minute drive to get there. It was in Sahat Arnoos where it's it's like so busy with other stores and people. And then our store was kind of like the center for everybody to meet. Like no matter like, you know, who are you meeting? And they say, oh, like, let's meet at Bashar's store. And then, which I loved it because, you know, you'll see all kinds of people, family, friends, because, you know, that store became kind of like the destination. I love that. I wanted to get back
0: to your map a little bit. I really loved your map. And I wanted to ask you, uh, the bookshelves make a lot of sense that you end up becoming a poet and a writer, that books had such an influence. You mentioned that uh, the bookshelf that you had your very first book or you picked your very first book. Do you remember what that book was?
1: Yeah, I actually do remember. So my mom loves reading. So I've always watched her read. And I watched her reading this thick book. And I thought, you know, I love a challenge. I want to read that book. And I was, you know, a teenager, so I picked up that book and I started reading, and I could not stop. And that book was Dan Brown: Angels and Demons," um, which oh, wow. is kind of like, yeah, it's kind of funny to be a first book, <laughs> but I just could not stop. and I was just so interested in the way the story is turning and then what's happening. I was just drawn into it, and then I was like, "Wow, I love this feeling where I'm lost in the book. I'm kind of separated from reality and like, this is kind of my own world. And then that's, that's where it all started. And then Paulo Coelho was actually the writer who I've read all of his books and I just fell in love with all his books. And he was the one to kind of encourage me on becoming a writer besides also Sylvia Plath, the poet. So these two kind of like showed me, you know, the love of writing. Were all
0: these in English or were you reading translations?
1: So Dan Brown was in Arabic, but Paulo Coelho was in English. So that was kind of like the process also of learning English. So for me, it was kind of like this whole thing where I'm reading, learning new words, looking up their definition, and then just like going back again to read the sentence again to see and understand like, okay, this is what they meant. Sylvia Plath also was in English. So books were also kind of part of how I learned English and why my English is good. That's
0: wonderful. At what point were when you started reading these books and, you know, you're reading Arabic, you're reading English and you're a teenager, is that what influenced you to think about becoming a writer yourself?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Another part of it is journaling. I love journaling. And then, you know, being a teenager, you know how like, you know, you journal, you don't want your parents to see it. So I started practicing more to write in English because my parents don't speak English. I'm like, okay, if I write in English in my journal, they'll never know what I'm writing about because they can't read it. So that's kind of how like it started with writing. And then at like 16, 17, when I wrote my first poem. Of course, it was kind of like a teenage love, break, heartbreak kind of, kind of poetry. So you can definitely, you know, see that it definitely switched right now.
0: But, was that in English or in Arabic?
1: It was in English. Yeah, I don't remember much of the poem, to be honest, but I know it was in English. Yeah, you should dig that one up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I can find it in my old journals, but I would definitely would love to see it and laugh at myself. <laughs>
0: Well, we'll be sharing more about your poetry in a little bit. I wanted to kind of talk about, you know, you drew your childhood home in Damascus and you live now in New York. You're in Brooklyn. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey from Syria to the U.S.?
1: So I left Syria at the end of 2012. I was just going for visit to Egypt. I was at Damascus University, studying English literature. I was a third year student. And um, we decided to go to Egypt because, you know, my uncle wanted to see us and our grandma. So we all went there. We packed our bags, which, you know, I don't even remember what I packed because I was like, okay, it's going to be a month, maybe max three months and we'll be back. And when we got to Egypt, my uncle and my dad convinced me to apply to come to the U.S. and Continue my education, knowing like the situation was getting worse. And I was walking to the university an hour and a half because my dad would not want me to take the buses or the taxis because of all like the bombing and the checkpoints. And then there was an incident that happened on campus and I made a mistake of telling my dad about it. And then he was just like, all right, well, you're not going to go again. Somehow they convinced me and then I applied for a visa. I applied for a student visa. I got denied the first time. I applied again. I got denied the second time. I applied again. I got denied the third time. So the whole process took me a year. It was a very difficult year in Egypt because one, I did not want to be there. Two, I just wanted to go back to school. Education was really important to me. I love being in the classroom. So to have wasted a year of my life and getting all these rejections. And to be honest, you know, like people in Egypt were not nice to us Syrians. We were obviously Syrians. My sisters and I would not leave the house because, you know, we couldn't just walk by ourselves. So it was really difficult. So towards the end, I kind of uh, I told my dad, like, you either send me back or I'm just going to go make my own money and, and book a ticket and go back by myself. Like, I want to go back home, which he said, OK, fine. Like, I'll take you back. But your mother and your siblings are not leaving. So they stayed in Egypt. My dad and I went back. It was time for my tests. And um, they convinced me to apply one more time in Lebanon. And then I was like, okay, fine. You gave me what I wanted. I'm back here. And when I was back, I was studying on candlelight because there's no electricity. But I was so determined, like, okay, I'm going to make it to my exams because I'm not wasting another year. So I was studying all these lectures that my friends, you know, bought for me and I kept them. And um, I went to Lebanon and I applied. Seven hours later, they gave me the the visa. They said, come back in 10 days and take your passport with the visa on it. And I couldn't believe them because, you know, after a year of rejection and just kind of like losing hope. And it's something like I didn't even want. I couldn't believe it. So when we left the embassy, I told my dad, you know, I'm not leaving without seeing my mom, you know. So within that day, she booked a ticket and she came back from Egypt. And then within a week I was gone. So my sister, the last time I saw her was in Egypt and I haven't seen her in 10 years now. Wow. So, yeah. Is she still in Egypt? No. So they went back after a year, maybe. So she's in Syria now. All of them are are in Syria right now. Yeah. So, I mean, I am thankful right now for where I'm at and for them to push me to come here because I would not be the person I am today and, and what I do and, and be a writer and, and be, you know, in this career, if it wasn't for my father who pushed me to leave. But you know, it's still difficult.
0: Yeah, it must be so difficult. And we say this a lot on this podcast, when we talk to Syrians and other people as well, this experience of leaving home in this very traumatic way you know it's so unique your journey is unique to you but it mirrors so many millions of other people's lives who've been upended in very similar ways and especially young people and we'll get to that as well because you work with so many young people through your interviews at Karam with the kids in Turkey that their journeys mirror yours
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I left, I was 21, uh, 22, maybe when I left. And then, you know, we talk about belongings as well. And honestly, I, that night when I left, my best friend stayed over with me and we were staying then at my grandma's house because our house wasn't a dangerous area. So whatever I had there, I just picked them all and, and just threw them into the suitcase I had no idea what I packed. Like, I don't know if I packed clothes, journals. And then at that time, my aunt was really sick and she was my favorite aunt. And, you know, like saying goodbye to her, like not knowing what's going to happen and just like not knowing what I packed or what I took and just leaving. It all kind of like kind of like a blurb to me right now, but you know, talking about it again. And, and I, I still remember the suitcase was red. It was a really bad suitcase in a bad shape, but yeah, talk about belongings. Like I didn't even say goodbye to my, my home because I left from grandma's house, like not even my house.
0: That's so hard. Yeah. You make it here and you go to Texas of all places and you're at university of Texas in Austin, which is a great place. How was your experience coming and studying English literature and all the things that you did in the American context?
1: Yeah, so the only reason why I got to Austin, Texas is because my cousins live there. So it's kind of like still staying with family. And I actually started at Austin Community College first. I got to Austin on Year's Eve, actually at 9.30 p.m. And I would never forget that. And it was a week before starting school. And I had to take all these tests and when I woke up the next morning, because I was exhausted, and I hadn't slept in two days. And uh, I woke up and I was just like, what are these people talking? Like, I obviously knew English, but I'm like, these are not my people. Obviously not my cousins also, but when I left the house and I'm like, where's my mom? Like, where are my people? Where are my things? I was just in a shock. But then it was kind of like on the go. Like, you know, you have to go to school, do the paperwork and do the tests. It helped that I had my cousins with me, but it was so difficult to be like the other person. And then um, I remember my first class was a psychology class. And um, the very first day, you know, the professor is asking, all right, say your name and where you're from. And what's your major? So it was my turn. I introduced myself and I said I'm from Syria. And they were like, Oh, wow, how long have you been here? And I was like a week. And everybody was so shocked. Like, they're like, wow, you've only been here a week. And then to me, that was kind of like, wow, it's been a week. And it just it's been crazy. It took me a little while to kind of adjust. And until this day, I don't I don't feel like I'm at home yet, 10 years later. But there are a lot of amazing friends that I've met that we are still friends right now that kind of made it feel like home in a place where it's not home. It's so
0: much determination to do that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You you need determination. You need strength. Like I feel that I grew up so fast because I'm like, okay, like I'm on my own. I know my uncle is close and my, and and his wife is close and I live with my cousins and, and, you know, like this family's here, but I need to depend on myself. So I feel that I grew up fast and I learned a lot. And ever since I moved, I just been also working and I just gained a lot of experiences and I'm so thankful for that. But I also feel like I miss part of that early 20s that, you know, people live, like, you know, like the having fun and you're in 20s and you're young and whatever that is. But I'm also thankful that I learned a lot.
0: I want to move into the things that you learned during your journey, both in Austin and in New York. And I wanted to ask you about studying English literature, doing your MFA. You are a poet, a published poet. How do you view poetry as a form of activism?
1: So when I was an undergrad, my major was English literature, but I was minor in creative writing. And then the first workshop I did, I feel like that was the first time where I wrote something in the activism kind of side of writing. And I just felt the power of it. And I felt how privileged I am to be able to express myself, whether that is in both languages or whether having people to hear me, to listen to me. And, you know, the ability to kind of translate those thoughts and feelings into the page. So it felt really, really powerful. And then from that moment, I felt that it's my calling. It's my duty to kind of help others tell their own stories. I would never, ever tell anybody's story, but I would offer the platform. I would offer the tools that I have, that I learned, that I gained to help them tell their own stories So I felt powerful. I was like, okay, like I don't do a lot of speeches, but I read poems and through these poems, I can tell people about home. I can tell people about the suffering of my people, about the loss, about the grief about belonging. It's really important to me, like talking about language as well, because, you know, oftentimes the Western world looks at Arabic as, you know, like this dangerous language and this heavy language, and they forget how beautiful it is and how beautiful Arabic poetry is. So I try to also include Arabic in my poems. And when I went to the MFA, I've actually had some professors push against the Arabic in my poems. But, you know, I stood my ground and I said, if there's Arabic in my poem, and I want you to understand, I would translate that line. But if I just want you to live with this line without you understanding, then you need to accept it. You need to accept this poem as is. And there was a lot of pushback, but I kept fighting because... So I remember one of the poems, it was about a martyr. And then, you know, whenever there's a martyr, like they hold him on their shoulders, and then they chant. So that line, that chants... I left it in Arabic. I didn't translate it. And like, he was kind of pushing back like, oh, I don't understand what what is this. I feel like I'm pushed outside of the poem. And I said, this is a chant. It's like a background chant. The important thing is the story of this martyr that was killed in the war, in the revolution. And and that's the thing is, like, I want people to accept a poem as is and just how they accept us as we are as refugees, as immigrants. This is who we are. So why would we change for you to feel comfortable? Why don't you let us feel welcome the way we are and who we are? And that's the same thing with Arabic in, in poems.
0: I mean, it's a really powerful concept of including the Arabic Because I'm thinking about your professor talking about you're pushing me outside of the poem. And in a way, that's kind of like what you actually are doing is that for insiders to feel like they're outsiders, to feel that discomfort. So it's not only about making the outsiders feel comfortable, which is so important, but also kind of sharing that discomfort with people who are on the inside who usually don't feel that. They don't feel the way refugees, immigrants, marginalized people feel to be outside on the boundary. And then having that one line that you can't understand and suddenly it's almost unacceptable, but you push that in your poetry. And I think that's really cool.
1: Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's like whenever they are put in that position of being kind of like the outsider, they feel discomfort. But we live this every single day as refugees and immigrants, we always feel like the other. And it's really hard. So it's just kind of like the simple experience that he's experienced because of a line. And I'm like, look at this, but on a bigger scale that we live every day.
0: This concept of adding Arabic to your poetry, were you inspired by other poets that you studied? Have you seen this in other languages? I think it's very unique. And I I remember hearing your poetry for the first time and hearing those Arabic words and thinking it's very incredible to have that in there without translation. Were you inspired by others?
1: Thank you. Yeah. So one of my favorite poets of all time, and she's actually a mentor and and an incredible human being, is Naomi Shihab Nye. She doesn't have Arabic in her poems, but sometimes she adds words and her poetry about, you know, Palestine and about the Middle East and about home. And she writes all kinds of stuff. She was such an inspiration to keep going and writing. You know, I had the privilege of being in her workshop throughout my MFA. And then, you know, we became closer even after. So she's always been kind of like the kind of like the power and powering me to keep doing this and then keep fighting for the Arabic poetry. Because honestly, before I never included Arabic in my poems, I started in the MFA when when I knew like okay. This is a powerful tool and I'm going to use it. This is my first language. This is my mother tongue and I am going to use it. And I am going to change people's perspective about it. And one of my poems is actually written in Arabic and I translate it in English. But whenever I'm doing readings, I ask the audience, like, how many of you speak Arabic? And it's usually like maybe one or two, like maybe max five. So I asked them, please close your eyes. I'm going to read this poem in Arabic and even if you don't understand i want you to just kind of listen like to the tone to the music of it so they close their eyes and i read it and afterwards before i read the english version of it i ask them like how did you feel and some people tell me they felt like they were meditating others said that it took them back to their childhood not knowing what the poem is about but well, you know, this poem is about a five-year-old boy who lost his dad to the war and his mom lost her legs to the war and how he's taking care of his family. But kind of that shows you that even though if you don't understand, and even though this is a language that you say, it's harsh, it's angry, it made you meditate. It made you think of, of your childhood. And I think that's one of the big successes is that I allowed this poem to live in a space or in a place where it's not understood, but it's welcomed.
0: That's also such a powerful thought as well, because as all of us who speak Arabic and understand Arabic, it's actually one of the most beautiful languages and so poetic and so expressive and Mm. has so much emotion. And it is viewed by the West and others as being this harsh, violent language. And it's the perception of the media that perpetuates that. And you're combating that through your
1: poetry. Yeah, absolutely. I try my best. (laughs) So I want to ask
0: before we go into other aspects of your work, I wanted to ask you if you could share one of your poems. I know that you had prepared to share one about belonging, and so I'd love for the audience to hear one of your poems with this Arabic language included.:
1: Yeah, of course. So I chose this poem because it kind of talks about belonging, it talks about home, and I'm just going to read it. It's called "What if I Was Never Here?" Anna Muba: I am displaced." If you search for me in history books, my name would be imperceptible. The historian knew I was here, here I was, when he said to me, once you leave the land, the land leaves you. Damascus soil no longer will recognize my footprints. An outlander, it would say, as if I wasn't given birth to, 20 minutes from the heart of the city. And lived and loved and loved and lived for 21 years. Once you leave, you are displaced, misplaced, what <inaudible> brought me here, who am I, where do I belong? I ask myself every morning as I brush my brown locks and blink with eyes big an inheritance of Syrian ancestors. My blood is damascene, but my body is lost. Take me again and displace me in the place I was first found. Lose me between jasmine scented petals on a hot summer day. I see July in Damascus. A sun so high I cannot reach. Hot sellers squatting outside of their shops praying for a cool breeze. Ya Allah shushub. And someone to bargain. Salam to the passerby. Faddal. They invite you for a cup of tea boiled with sugar to give it the sweetness of the city. Ahlo sahla. Habibi. kifini echidmak, Thank you.
0: That's just so incredible. I remember hearing that poem before you performed it last year at the Arabian Nights that we hosted and. It just takes you straight back to Damascus, and it's so beautiful. Thank you so much, Noor.
1: Thank you. Thank you for uh, giving me the space to share my poetry. So I wanted to move into your work with Kerem. For people listening in, if you've received
0: our newsletters, Noor is the person who puts these newsletters together. She does so much of our writing, so much of our blogs. Our leader stories are one of our most important components for our communications, and we're so proud to be able to share leader stories with everybody who supports Kerem. And it really is about our mission of building 10,000 leaders. So I wanted to ask you, Noor, how is that experience of collecting the leader stories, putting them together and speaking with these incredible young people?
1: It's absolutely my favorite thing in the whole world, to be honest. And I'm not saying this just because, you know, I'm talking to you, Lena, you know, as the CEO and, and founder of Ketam. but I honestly, I love my job because I get inspired by these. Young refugees, it's absolutely my favorite to sit down and talk to them, to talk to them about their story. Because, you know, like right now I'm kind of in their position where you're asking me about my story and I felt that I belong, you know, you made me feel that I belong. You made me feel that I'm seen. You made me feel that I'm heard. So I wanted to allow those kids the space to tell their stories. And, you know, we always start by leaving home and taking the journey and then getting to where they are today. And the kind of progression of the story shows you how, despite the difficulties they went through, towards the end of the conversation, I always ask them, what's your advice? And it's always so positive. It's always so inspiring. It's always so uplifting. That shows you, like, you know, they are here to not steal jobs. They're here not to cause troubles, problems, or anything. They're here because they care about the world. They care about their community. They care about their future. They're working towards that. And they're doing amazing work. My last interview was with our leader, Ahmed. And we were just talking like this was absolutely one of my favorite interviews. And he was saying he left home when he was 11. But he's saying like he was always into inventions since he was six years old. And then Keram allowed him that space to expand on his inventions and to learn more. And that he's taking fifteen studios at Keram and he hasn't even graduated yet. And he said, you only need eight. But, you know, I just I love learning and I want to focus on this and I want to get as much experience because he said this thing where he said, even though we were forced to leave home, we are only weapon that we can carry is education. And he said to, you know, the youth that they went through similar experience, he said, the best thing you can do for yourself is to invest in yourself, to learn new skills and to prepare yourself for college, for university and and for your future. So stuff like this, it kind of, it inspires me as a writer, as a person, as an immigrant, a Syrian immigrant, as someone who also left home, who went through similar journey as they are. And I feel so connected to them and I feel honored that they trust me to help them write and tell their stories. I mean,
0: I think that this tells the entire story, right, of how we view The kids themselves and the communities that we serve is that whole idea of investing in the future and investing in human beings and giving people that chance to shine and reach their full potential. That's the belief of our organization. And the fact that Ahmed tells others that you need to invest in yourself just shows how that ripple effect is happening. And the fact of really understanding that if you leave wherever you are, which and all of us move around... What you take with you is what you've learned and your education is so powerful.
1: Yeah. And then the one thing that I hear from every student I've I've spoken to is that at Kerem House, they feel safe. Therefore, they can learn, they can grow, they feel comfortable with sharing their ideas. This shows the importance of, you know, on a bigger scale, like the community or the new adopted country or whatever that. Those refugees and immigrants need to feel safe to grow, to learn. You know, if you're sitting on the edge of your seat, always looking right and left because you're afraid you're not going to be able to focus on yourself and on your future. So like Kerem House allows those students, you know, they're not just investing in their future, they're also working on their present And then, you know, the importance of it, like Ahmed said, when I first started, and they have to, you know, present their project, he said, I was terrified, you know, I never liked speaking in front of people, I was really nervous, I was so proud of my project, but through Kerem, and then the encouragement of the mentors, and you know, seeing other students do it, he said, now I love presenting, I just love getting up there and sharing about my work and what I've done. And and he wants to continue that. So definitely, you know, I hope people are inspired by what Kerem is doing to just, you know, kind of expand that on like a bigger scale in terms of, you know, community and country and, and the world, really.
0: It takes a lot of courage to present your project and to read your poem too. This is something that I've always believed in as well. I mean, it's from my own personal experience is that idea of these kinds of skills are the skills that get you the job, get you to be advanced in your career, give you the courage to start your own initiative, whatever that is. And there are skills that have nothing to do with being a refugee, nothing to do with being marginalized, living in poverty or any of the kinds of circumstances of the kids that we serve, or people who have fled war, have seen the worst of humanity and the most extremely traumatic of experiences, that these kinds of things are that we have at Kerem House and what we instill in the kids and in the families are things that are very human. And that's the most important part. It has nothing to do with that kind of experience, but the people who have had these kinds of experiences are the ones that need this kind of investment most.
1: Exactly. And I feel what we're doing is we are redefining what it means to be a refugee because these kids, they're not defined by being a refugee. They are defined by who they are and what they want to be. Ahmed wants to go to space. He wants to be an astronaut. That's why he wants to study. And, you know, I feel that, you know, being in the studio and presenting the project he made, He's uh, presenting it as an inventor, not as a, a refugee. And I think that's really, really important. Yes, you know, being refugees and immigrant is part of us and will always be, but that's not who we are. We are way more than that.
0: I also want to underscore the power of the fact that you, as Noor, you're the person who's interviewing Ahmed and asking him for his story and crafting his story. And like you said, you love to tell other people's story in their own voice as close as possible. So if you've read our leader's stories, you'll notice that the stories are often very much in their voices and very close to the stories that they've told Noor, but the fact that they're telling their story to a Syrian woman, somebody who's actually been through that journey, a similar journey, has had a lot of the, faced all of the challenges, that for me is so important as well, that they're giving their story to that trusted and safe source as well.
1: Yeah, that's why I always make sure to tell them, like, you know, I've been there, you know, I went through something like you and I am Syrian. Like, I always make sure, you know, tell them, like, I feel you, you know, and I feel that makes them feel more comfortable with sharing, with with telling me and, you know, about their experience. I always make sure to tell them this is a safe space. And my very, very first thing I say, I'm going to ask you questions. But if you're not comfortable with one question, you don't have to answer. Just share as much as comfortable. And you usually are so proud and so excited. And, and I hear this from mentors, too. They say, you know, there's the student who really wants to talk to you like they want to tell their story. And this just makes me so happy that they are willing to share and, and inspire others
0: me too it makes me so happy and i i love the fact that ahmed described karam house as the place that home is safety and it's literally the same definition you gave to belonging at the beginning of our conversation today so you can see that uh, circle of actually, the cycle happening of yeah, the actually. same kinds of ideas it makes me very proud thank you so much noor for all of your hard work at karam and everybody really go out and look at our website and read the leader stories because they are very inspirational.
1: Thank you. And thank you for welcoming me into the Keram family. You know, such a great team and, you know, great CEO. It just, it's like, it makes the job easier and enjoyable. So thank you.
0: We love having you on the team. I'm going to move on to the rapid fire questions, which you also know them very well. Now you're on the, you're on this side of the interview. So the first one is complete this sentence. Home is where? Home is, is where my mother is. Beautiful. My second question is, you left your home and uh, you talked a little bit about the belongings that you took with you. I wanted to ask if you had to leave home again today and you had to take one thing with you as a memory, what would that be?
1: That would be my journals. But, you know, as I said earlier, when I left, I did not take anything with me or I didn't know what I packed. But later on, my sister actually sent me my journals since I was, you know, a teenager. So I have them with me right now.
0: I'm sure that you love having those with you.
1: Yeah. You know, it's sometimes I look at them like, what am I writing? But I definitely love them.
0: What's the one piece of advice you would give to a young refugee who's trying to find belonging in a new place?
1: I would say be as authentic as you can be. Be yourself. Be who you are. Don't try to change to fit someone else's criteria or to fit the criteria of those who are around you. Because if they don't make you feel that you belong in that circle or you don't, they don't make you feel that you're safe, then they are not your people. Just move on. Just don't change. Just be, be yourself. Great advice. So I know you've lived several places along your journey. If you could choose
0: one of the hometowns that you'd like, give us a list of three unexpected places people must visit there.
1: Since I've been diving into memories, I definitely want to say places in Syria. The first one would be the train tracks that I lived by. It kind of like the train passed like maybe every Friday. The whole house would shake and that was just so exciting. It's a train that would go from Al-Hijaz station and it passes by Dummar, and it goes to Zabadani. Zabadani is a city in Damascus and people would be like hanging outside the train and kids like just hanging on there and then they would let go. And I just love that. The second place, and I don't know if this place is still open, but Lina, if you've been to Damascus, I don't know if you've ever had wad sandwich. Place place they used to make like fries sandwich like french fries sandwich with coleslaw that's so syrian (laughs) yes and it was so cheap that it was like 15 liras and i just i love that sandwich i don't know if that place still open and then the third place is also food related is abu abdul like the juice place incredible juice and then they would like elaborate with like the fruit and you know the ice cream and it was really incredible
0: not healthy.
1: Not healthy at <laughs> all.
0: <laughs> but it's good. I, I remember the first time I ever had like a sandwiched batata, which is this French fry sandwich. I was so baffled. Like, why would we put French fries in a sandwich? But it is really special.
1: I know. And it was in a baguette kind of, you know, bread. Oh, it was the best with some ketchup. I'm hungry now. <laughs> we'll
0: check and see if these places are still open and we'll put them in the list as well. Yes. What dish tastes like home to you?
1: I'd have to say macaroni which is macaroni with vegetables and it's baked in the oven. It's my mom's like a uh, secret recipe and it's the best. I've tried to make it so many times, but it's not as good as my mother's. I don't think I've had that. I'll keep trying and when I see you next, maybe I would have it by then.
0: You can practice. <laughs> yes. We talked a lot about books earlier in our conversation, but I just wanted to ask again, if you had any book or books that you recommend often to your friends that you'd like to share with our audience?
1: It was so hard picking a few books because, you know, you know me, I I love reading. But one poetry collection that I really connected with is Deaf Republic by Ilya Kaminsky. It's kind of like a story that is told through poems and then the setting is in an occupied country in a time of a political unrest. And then um, the soldiers who are trying to break the protests, they kill a deaf boy. And then the whole country goes deaf. And then the last thing they've heard is gunshots. And the way it's written, and then there's also like the sign language kind of drawn into the poetry collection is just beautiful. It made me feel that I belong to this collection because it's so close to home of like lost and grief and all that. Another book is Time is a Mother by Ocean Vong. It's also a collection of poems. It's a paradoxical expression of grief while kind of still remaining determined to survive. He wrote it about after the death of his mother. And it's such a beautiful way that he expresses how, you know, even though we grief every day, you know, the losses that we've had, but we yet have to be determined to survive. And then there are a like, few other books like The Road from Raqqa by Jordan Riddle-Khan, The Beekeeper of Aleppo by Christy Leftery. These are amazing, amazing books that definitely would go back and read over and over again.
0: Thank you for this list. We'll definitely share it. I am very interested and intrigued by the first one, Deaf Republic. That sounds really, really great and powerful. Time as a Mother is a book that I've read and I love Ocean Vong, So I really recommend everybody reading it and reading his novel. His novel On Earth, we were briefly gorgeous. gorgeous? Yes. yes.
1: Yeah. Such a great it's novel. Very powerful.
0: Yeah. It's so moving.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Thank you so much,
0: Nord, for your time. I know you're a very busy woman doing lots of different things. And uh, I really appreciated our conversation and learned a lot as well. So I appreciate your work and your time. And I hope everybody enjoyed this conversation.
1: Thank you so much again, Nina, for having me and for allowing me this space and also for making me feel that I, I belong and being interested in, in my story and what I do. So thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> thank you.
0: My next conversation is with 19-year-old Sam. Sam was a student at House, Istanbul before leaving Turkey with his family for the Netherlands. Sam, an inspiring filmmaker, has moved around quite a bit for a young adult his age. And as a result, he formed a unique perspective on belonging. I learned so much from Sam, and I'm sure you will too. Let's listen together. Hi, Sam. Welcome to Belongings.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: I'm so excited to speak with you. I don't think we've spoken in a while. And I'm very excited for our audience to meet you.
2: Yeah, I haven't seen you in a while. I moved uh, away from Turkey and uh, graduated from Karam House, but I'm very excited to speak with you again and to catch up.
0: So I have some questions for you about your experience at Karam House and as well as your journey to where you are now from Syria. I wanted to start if you could just tell the audience about yourself and where you are and what you're doing right now.
2: I'm Sam Al-Saman. I was born in Syria and I'm 19 years old right now. Currently, I am in the Netherlands in a city called Tilburg, but I live in a small village, which is uh, very full of uh, farms and cows. I am right now doing a year of pre-bachelor, which is a preparation year for a bachelor study, and I'm learning uh, Dutch and some other subjects that are related to a bachelor study. And, uh, hopefully next year I'll be able to do a bachelor in design or filmmaking or something in that area, but I haven't quite decided on what it is uh, per se. I graduated from Kermhaus two years ago, I think, in the beginning of 2021. And I, yeah, I was in Kermhaus since I was 17 till I turned 19.
0: So tell me, how long have you been in the Netherlands?
2: Today, a year and seven months.
0: Wow, that's amazing. How do you like it so far?
2: I really like it. I grew up in a lot of different places from Syria to Jordan to Turkey to here. So I'm quite used to moving around and adjusting to different cultures, different uh, spaces, different uh, communities. So it's not quite hard for me to adjust and to get used to the place I am in. And I like it quite so far.
0: So my first question for you is actually about this concept of belonging, which is the theme of the podcast. So I wanted to ask you, what does belonging mean to you?
2: When I was younger, I used to think that uh, I have to belong to a place. So that used to be for me when I was younger, Syria. And then after that, it changed into being maybe Turkey. So I used to always attach me belonging somewhere to a place or a house or something like that. But uh, from moving around, I kind of realized that it's uh, the people you surround yourself with. And where do you feel most yourself and most welcome?
0: That's a beautiful definition. So one of the things that we always do in this podcast is ask every guest to draw home and to map home. And I used to do this a lot at Karam House when we first opened in Raihande, as well as in the camps in Syria and really even beyond that inside Syria, when I used to live in Aleppo to talk about drawing the places that we're from and looking at our cities and our homes in a closer way. And I know that you're all into design and to art. So I think that you'll like this exercise. I know that you have a piece of paper and something to draw with. And the question is to think about a place that you consider home. It could be a home in the past. It could be the present. It could be something imagined for the future. Some people draw a floor plan. Some people draw another image. It can be whatever you want and kind of draw this mapping of home. Then you'll talk about your map. And sometimes, you know, if you want to take a few minutes to draw in silence and then explain your drawing, that's fine. If you want to speak while you're drawing, that's okay as well. But we'll do that for the next couple of minutes and then we can discuss it. Yeah, perfect. All right. Ready? Yeah. Okay, let's see the drawing.
2: So I'm very into sketching. So I like sketching random things and put it all in like a one canvas I don't like painting something and it's like just one painting I like painting different kind of stuff and then put them all together so right now I feel most home or most belong through these different kind of things so here you can see friends I made here camping I've been going camping with a lot of different people so I feel like I belong with them here is my work I work in a a sort maze it's a artistic maze called Dolores Metamaze. And there I feel also a lot of belonging to the maze itself and also to the people I work with. You can see here my little computer because I was living in Turkey, but also I left my best friends there in Turkey. But even though I left, we're still connected and still best friends through my computer and through our little Discord so that, and also music, I'm uh, very much into music, and I'm trying to learn also how to make music. So these different kind of things, and family, and friends, these kind of different things, all form for me the belonging, the need of belonging that I feel belong to. I feel home when all these things connect.
0: That's really beautiful. Do you play a specific instrument, or you, do you use your computer for music? Uh,
2: I just started learning piano. I just started, like. Very much the beginning of what every note does.
0: It's another language you can add on to the languages, you know.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: So you mentioned Syria, you mentioned Jordan and Turkey as part of your journey, and now you're in the Netherlands. Could you tell us a little bit about that journey?
2: Uh, I left Syria when I was nine years old. It was 2012 and I left altogether with my whole family to Jordan, except my oldest brother. He left for Turkey and we stayed in Jordan for three and a half years. And I just studied there in my middle school. I kind of grew up there in Jordan because when I left Syria, I was still very young, nine years old. And then in 2015, my family also decided to move to Turkey And so we moved all together again to Turkey. And I stayed in Turkey for another five years and I did my high school there. And that's also where I joined the Karam House in 2019. In Turkey, I also did most of my growing up. I learned Turkish, English, met a lot of different people through Karam House and through school and through different kind of things. And then in uh, 2019, my father left Turkey and moved to the Netherlands. And after COVID, I had to decide whether I want to study in Turkey or move to the Netherlands and study in the Netherlands. And uh, for me, the better decision was to come here and study uni here. And I'm here now for a year and a half and hopefully it will go well.
0: That's a very long journey and across different places. Do you have a difficulty in learning Turkish and now you're learning Dutch? Is it something that you knew before when you were younger that this language for you were something that you like to study? Or was it really all by necessity and just kind of going into the place and having to do it?
2: Growing up, I only spoke Arabic in the house with my family and with the relatives and stuff. But when we came to Turkey, it was basically a necessity for me to learn Turkish. I was just thrown into the Turkish education system and uh, I had to just learn by going to school every day simply. Around 2018, beginning of 2019, I kind of started knowing what I want to do in terms of studying. And I had the idea in my head that I wanted to study in English, either in Turkey or outside of Turkey. At that time, I wanted to learn English and that wasn't a necessity for me. I didn't need to use it in Turkey or anything, but I just wanted to learn English. I just learned English from watching movies, TV shows, friends mainly. And then uh, also joining Karam House improved my English in terms of practicing, because we got a lot of uh, visiting mentors who were uh, English-speaking mentors. And uh, I just used that as an opportunity for me to practice English because I used to only learn it from movies and TV shows. I listened a lot, I read a lot, but I didn't really speak a lot. So I used that as a point to better my English more. And now in the Netherlands, it's not really a necessity again in the Netherlands because Netherlands is the best country in the world who speaks English as a second language. So here, basically, everyone speaks English here and you can really live your life here without having to speak Netherlands at all. But it's just uh, that I also want to learn Dutch and it's a good skill to have uh, four languages in your pocket. So I was like, yeah, why not? Let's add Dutch to the mix. Yeah,
0: it's absolutely a good skill and it increases your capacity for connection and communication and creativity. It really is an expansion of your brain. And so it's very, very impressive to be able to collect languages like this. And I know it's very hard work, but uh, it's very good for you to expand. And I I hope it'll give you a lot of connections as well in the Netherlands. Hopefully, yeah. I want to move to your interest in filmmaking, which it's also its own kind of language as well. language in the arts to tell stories. And I know that you had projects at Karam House that have to do with filmmaking. Why were you interested in filmmaking and design and this angle of um, storytelling? And can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be and what your work is now?
2: My interest in filmmaking and videography in general began when I was 15 years old, I think. At that time, I didn't own a camera or a phone, but I owned a laptop that I had bought from my savings. And I just downloaded uh, editing software and I started like editing, I downloaded photos and then edited edited the photos together, added sound and then made a video from just photos from the internet and sound and a music sound. I don't know, something about that just made me feel very happy that I just made something out of different kind of things and just became one product. And I just kept on doing that. And then... After that, I got my phone and I started making uh, YouTube videos. I didn't really publish any of them, but I would just for myself and I would just like film my day going to school or film something interesting that I saw. And I would also go home and edit those into a video, add music, add special effects and stuff like that. Then it was just me playing with a camera and a video. But in Kram House, it kind of became more of a storytelling. I learned through some workshops, filmmaking workshops, and also I kind of learned that the storytelling part of the job, which was uh, very important to me and also kind of made my passion stronger for the filmmaking because now I'm not only passionate about filming and editing stuff, I'm also really passionate about telling a story, about reaching a goal with my content that I'm making. And from that point, it kind of really started amazing me that I could with a piece of content from a minute long, I could make someone feel something or relate to a problem or help someone even tell their story, if it's not my story. And yeah, that is the most important thing for me, which is to make someone feel an emotion through a piece of content that isn't necessarily a very big Hollywood film level. It's just some kid with a camera doing something and it makes you either empathize or laugh or even cry. Last thing I did, I was a part of... a volunteer group here in the Netherlands, there is some things that are called is, as it says, which are the asylum center. And that is the place where all the refugees, when they first come to the Netherlands, they have to stay at. And it is the sort of camp where it's full of houses and every refugee stays there until they get their residence permit, which is probably a year, sometimes more. Some people stay there for a couple of years and it is quite a harsh condition in which you can't really do anything with your life until you get there as an experiment. So people there, especially young people, get very bored and uh, they don't really do a lot of things in their time. And I was a part of a group, I volunteered with them, And I was also in the Azize at the time, but I was done with my procedures. And we made a video with them, a Dutch filmmaker. He was the main uh, director, but I was also with him in the story writing and uh, uh, videography. And uh, we just made a video with the young adults in the Azize. And the idea was for them to write the video, film it and do everything surrounding making a video about their life in the as it say and what do they do and how it is to be a refugee in the Netherlands in the as it say in the asylum center. And, um, yeah, that was the last project I did and I was very proud of the end product that came out. and It got also premiered in uh, cinemas before you you go to a film, you get to a film, you go to see a film in a cinema and it like some ads appear before the film. It appeared in uh, a couple of local cinemas here before you go watch a movie.
0: I mean, I have so many follow-up questions for this. (laughs) Yeah. It's really great. I mean, I want to talk about this. Let's start with this project that you just mentioned because it's so powerful and great. What made you want to volunteer with this group where, did you live in these camps as well? Yeah. Was your family already out before when you came?
2: I was already in the, as i say, I was living in the, in the asylum center because uh, you, there's also here a wait time to get a house. There, you have to wait a certain amount of time to get a house. So when I came here, I had to stay in the asylum center till we get a house. But the difference between me and the other people in the Azat say that I had already received my residence permit, which meant that I could technically study and work and live my daily life normally. But the other young adults in the Azat say, they weren't allowed to study or work or do anything remotely to move forward in their life. The only thing they could do is basically wait in the Azat say. So I could relate to them remotely, of how it is to live in the, as it say. But also uh, my situation was very different because they felt very stuck in their own asylum center because they couldn't really do anything outside of being there.
0: Are they most of them Syrian?
2: Maybe two, three Syrians, one uh, Kenyan, Kazakhstan, Iran, Egypt, a lot of different kind of refugees.
0: Are a lot of people around your age?
2: Yeah, mostly between the age of uh, 16 till 23.
0: How many people live there?
2: Well, the people that were part of the project were around ten to fifteen people, but the people living in as it say there's around forty as it says forty as it say locations in the Netherlands, and in each one of them there's thousands of people, depending on how big is the as it say there's around a thousand more than a thousand people living in each as it say
0: Are there always new people coming to these asylum centers or? Are most people finding their way to get to the residency status, or are people getting stuck there for longer?
2: It variates between each individual case. But yeah, there's new people every day, and uh, depends on where you're from, is how fast you get your residence permit. Usually, people coming from Syria are the fastest because there is a pretty clear case of why you're coming here to seek asylum. So the IND, which is the immigration office, they don't really have to study your case very deeply or take a long time to study your case. But for instance, people I knew from uh, Kenya, they lived in the Azat for five years and they just last month left the Azat And people from Iran also take, I know people that in, from Iran that lived there three years. I knew people who lived there six years and it, it variates between each case and where you come from. But, and some people don't even get their residence permit. They just tell them that- We don't accept you as a refugee. Yeah, it varies from each people. And uh, in my case, it was fast.
0: Really struck me when you described people as just waiting and not having something to do with their lives and that must feel very painful especially for people at that young age where you are looking forward you know most teenagers around the world are looking forward they only have to look forward in their life and have their whole lives in front of them so I can't imagine how it is to be around all these youth with all of their potential and feel stuck like that and not be able to do what they want.
2: Yeah, it is a very weird feeling to want to do something but not be able to do it. People try to do their best, like the organization that I volunteered with to do in I'd the Say. They do weekly-based activities for those young adults. When I started going to the organization, I very much thought of Cram House because they are very similar to them. They do a lot of similar workshops around designing something or making prototypes or drawing and making boxes into robots and stuff like that. And uh, I very much uh, thought of Camera House when I started joining the organization, which made me like them a lot more. There is some stuff you can do in that, say, like the stuff that this organization offers, or some basic language courses. But other than that, it is uh, very frustrating that young people in my age really have to just wait sometimes for years to be able to move on with their lives and get to wherever they want to go.
0: What is the name of the organization?
2: Vrolkaid.
0: I want to tag them, tag their good work and share with everybody listening, To for, we should all look them up because that sounds really, really inspiring. The film that you worked on with this group, did you see it in the theater?
2: No, I fortunately didn't see it in the theater, but I did see it when I was done editing because I was also part of the editing uh, procedure.
0: Is there a link to that video as well? We could share it also.
2: Yes, I will send it to you after we're done.
0: That's great. I want to go back to this idea. I mean, first of all, I wanted to ask you, like, do you plan to work in the future in filmmaking? I know you mentioned earlier, you want to study filmmaking and design. So what are those plans?
2: Well, right now, as I said, I'm in my prep year and uh, luckily this prep year, I also get a lot of opportunity to explore more about which study and which field do I want to be into. So right now, currently I'm going to a lot of open days at universities to try to discover what each uh, field is and what each different subjects in school are. And um, I'm thinking about studying uh, media or journalism, something like that, not precisely filmmaking per se. And then from there, I'll find my way to fit into the filmmaking or the media field because I don't necessarily want to be a director, but I also want to be part of the production procedure. Really
0: great. I can't wait to see what you create and where you go. I wanted Thank to you. ask you about Ketam House, your specific experience. I know it's great to hear that you had such a great experience and that you enjoyed your time at Kerem House and you learned and you were able to take some of the things that you learned moving forward in your life, which is exactly what we want everybody at Ketam House to do. Can you talk a little bit about the projects that you made and why this place was important to you when you were attending there?
2: Well, I joined Karam House at a time in my life where I was very introverted personally. I was only in school. I didn't go much outside of school, so I was only in school. And I joined Karam House, and uh, honestly, I got to meet a lot of cool people there, not only mentors, but also students, a lot of cool students that are still to this day my friends, my closest friends. It kind of put me in the community where I w- what I was looking for. I was also kind of looking for the community where I fit in personally, because I am a creative person, but I also, I wanted to be around those kind of people, creative people. And that has kind of gave me that opportunity. And uh, it was also super fun to learn a lot of different things. Skills that I use actually, like, I got into school because I had a Karam House diploma, honestly, because unfortunately, because of problems with me moving here and the timing of me moving here, I wasn't able to get my high school diploma. And uh, the school here, when I sent them everything about me, they were like, your diploma is not enough to go into university here. Or even to the prep year, but I was like, but I got the skills to do university. They got what, what skills do you have? I was like, just give me the opportunity. And they did an interview with me and I talked a bit about Karmhaus and I showed one of some of my projects. And here in the Netherlands, a very important skill they say is presenting or public speaking because here education is based on doing, not precisely research, especially universities of applied sciences. It's basically. Just Karm House on a university level, and so the interviewer from the university was very much uh, amazed by uh, not only by my work but also by Karm House and the skills that I told them about the presentation skills that I had learned, also the research skills or the creativity about it. And they said it to me blank that seventy percent of why we accepted you is because you have those skills already. And all you need is just a bit of uh, preparation because you don't have a diploma. And to this day, every day at school, I do presentations weekly at school. And I still use some of the feedback that I had <laughs> from Karim House or from uh, mentors that I uh, received earlier.
0: That's so wonderful. I love that story. It means so much to me and I know it will mean so much to the team to hear this. Can you tell us a little bit, like what specifically, what skills do you use daily? What do you rely on when you talk about feedback? Do you have any details or is yes. a specific project that you'd like to tell us about?
2: A specific project, I'll talk about the most recent thing. I had to do a uh, presentation in Dutch, and learning how to present in Karam House was the biggest skill I learned, maybe. I was good in presentation in English or in Arabic. So presenting in, uh, in Dutch was kind of scary for me. And um, I hadn't done a presentation in a year maybe because I left Kermhaus and I wasn't in school and I just joined school recently. So I was very nervous at the first time to present again and in a new language and do a presentation of uh, 15 minutes about a subject that I had researched on beforehand, I was very nervous. I was shaking as usual, shaking my hand, drinking water, going back and forth to the bathroom. I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? And then as soon as I started, it's kind of blank in my head because I only remember the presentation ending. I was in Kerm House Was like, yeah, I just started moving around the stage, my hands and speaking, like very confidently speaking. And the teacher was like, OK, what's going on here? And I spoke Dutch better than I speak in daily life. And it was just my head went blank because of how much we did presentations in House. It's kind of a just a muscle memory thing for me now. I still need to get better. I'm not saying I'm the best, but that's something very, very thankful for from House because It gave me a lot of uh, confidence and something that even in a new language, I can still do comfortably.
0: I mean, I'm thankful to you for telling us this story because it's so helpful to see when we put together Karam House and the programs and the team, the idea was you all are seeds and the work that we're doing are seeds in the seeds and we don't know what will happen later. And so when I see people like you taking everything forward and using the investment you know, even in a different language, in a different context at university. It just makes my heart feel so full because that little seed is blossoming and it's becoming something that we didn't even imagine, you know, at the time when we started, where everybody will end up and how they will use this. But I do know And I do a lot of presentations and a lot of speaking, and you have to continue working on the skill. It is a muscle, and you always are working to improve yourself. But it's such an important one because wherever you go, if you're able to communicate your ideas clearly, already you're so much ahead of everybody else because most people don't work on it. And it is very scary, and it takes a lot of courage to stand in front of a group of people and present your idea specifically in a third language or fourth language for you. That's incredible.
2: It is quite a useful skill, I'd say, because you said it already, it's uh, very important to communicate what you have, because if you don't communicate what you have, people don't know anything about you.
0: Yeah, so true. Before we turn to the rapid fire questions that I ask all of our guests, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned learning English from friends and you are so into filmmaking. What do you have any favorite TV shows or films you can share with us?
2: Yeah, definitely. Friends is my comfort TV show. I also like uh, movies that have a lot of uh, deeper stories behind them that makes you movies that makes you that makes you think about deeper stuff like uh, the movie In Time, maybe Fight Club also, or Pulp Fiction. Those kind of movies are really deep movies and heavy movies that you need to watch very carefully, but also some fun stuff like Friends or How I Met Your Mother, those kind of TV How shows, sitcoms, or Big Bang Theory. I really like also to just have and chill and have watched watch and without really paying any attention, but just enjoying
0: Thank you for these recommendations and we'll share those as well. So for the rapid fire questions, my first one is complete this sentence. Home is where?
2: Where my family is.
0: If you had to leave your home and take one belonging with you as a memory, what would it be?
2: A book called Home. It's a poetry book called Home.
0: Do you know the author's name?
2: It's Whitney Hansen.
0: What's special about this book?
2: It is a poetry book and it is actually the first book that I read completely. And uh, this book kind of just made me connect with the feelings that I had, but I couldn't really put my finger on. But really reading through it, it kind of just like, yes, I have this feeling, but I didn't know. Or I knew I had that feeling, but I couldn't put it into words. And this book, it's three sections. And the first section is about someone who's lost. And the second section is about someone wanting to find their way and wanting to it be better, and then the search section is uh, this person finding the, their home within themselves, not within objects or people or places and uh, I relate a lot to that book and to the person in that book and their journey to finding themselves.
1: Thank you
0: so much. We will look into that. It sounds like an incredible book. What's one piece of advice that you would give? You've probably done this already. I asked these two guests as hypotheticals, but I think that you've already gone through these. What's one piece of advice that you would give a young refugee who's trying to find belonging in a new place?
2: Don't look for a place. Look for what makes you feel welcome and accepted. Is that within some people? Is that within a community? Is that within uh, an activity maybe or work? Where do you feel most accepted and welcomed?
1: That's great advice.
0: Can you give us a list of three unexpected places that people must visit in your hometown? And you can define hometown wherever you'd like.
2: Istanbul, Karmhaus. In Jordan, you should visit a small town called Suefia And it is uh, where I lived. And it's basically a town full of uh, Jordanian people, like actual Jordanian people, not really foreign. And it's a very small town and it's very close to my heart. And in Netherlands, you should visit my work, Dolores Maze. It is a very nice artistic maze and it is the biggest indoor maze in uh, Europe. So it is a very cool place.
0: I need to look that place up so it's an actual maze people go through.
2: Yeah, but the goal is is not for you to find the exit. The exit is very obvious. The goal for you is to look to find yourself, your journey within the maze, through the art in the maze and throughout the different kind of stuff you'll face in the maze. And the maze has more than 40 different rooms and every each room is made by a different artist and they all come together to make this maze.
1: Sounds
0: amazing. And you work there? Yes. That sounds like a perfect job for you too. Yeah. What dish tastes like home to you?
2: It is the pasta, but it's like the not good pasta because my mom, the only thing she can't make is pasta. And I whenever I eat the pasta that is not good, I remember my mom.
0: Oh, I think I can relate to that one as a mom. I think my kids would say something similar. I know you talked about a book called Home, but my last question is, if there is a book or books that you've recommended to your friends to read over the years that you'd like to recommend to the audience, do you have another book that you'd like to talk about?
2: Right now I'm reading another poetry book. It's called Pillow Thoughts. Uh, it is more of a romantic poetry rather than a self-reflection poetry, but it's a quite nice book, I think.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Well, Sam, thank you so much for your time and staying up late. I know it's not too late for you on a Friday night in the Netherlands, but I really appreciate your time. And I wanted to say I'm very, very proud of you. I want to continue to follow your journey and I wish you all the best. And I'm so glad to share your story with our audience because you really are a reflection of the 10,000 leaders that we believe in, the people that take the skills and the investment that we have for young Syrians to go out into the world and reach their full potential. This was the dream, and I'm so happy to start seeing that dream come to become a reality with you. So I wish you all the best, and hopefully we'll talk again soon and you can give us an update.
2: Yes, thank you very much. I'm very glad that I was part of this and also part of uh, Cram House and the amazing thing you've created and helped create. Thank you very much for having me and good night.
0: Thank you. Bye, Sam. Bye. Thanks for listening to Belongings. I'm your host, Lina Sergiatar. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it to be meaningful. This episode of Belongings was produced by Rama Majzoub and Noor Al-Ghrawi. Episode research by Ghania Chowdhury. Podcast artwork by Suleyman Faour. Music is Inni Mneeh by Mashrou' Layla. Please follow, rate, and review Belongings wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow Belongings on Instagram at Belongings Podcast. If you would like to support building a sense of belonging, community, and well-being for refugee youth, please visit karamfoundation.org. Thank you, everyone. See you next time. Oh